Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, New York City goes for the green. We chat with City Limits publisher Jarrett Murphy about our Green New Deal. And what the mayor was saying is that if you want to build those buildings, you have to figure out a way to reduce those emissions somehow by green roofs, by um, reducing the footprint in other ways. And let's not forget about the birds. And then more politics, but this time in portraiture. We're talking with one of the artists currently showing work at the Brick House Gallery. It is for the younger folks to be able to look at those paintings and to be able to identify women who could be mentors and resources for them because these women have like decades of information and knowledge that they can share. As Franklin D. Roosevelt said, I pledge you, I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. Let us all here assembled constitute ourselves prophets of a new order of competence and of courage and of tiny rooftop windmills. Okay, he didn't say that last bit, but that's what New Yorkers can look forward to with the Green New Deal passed by the city council last month. And tiny windmills are just the beginning. To discuss this landmark legislation, as well as a hiccup in state campaign finance reform and the latest in the exciting charter revision process, we're joined by our favorite city and state reporter, Jarrett Murphy, executive editor of City Limits. Welcome back, Jarrett. Thanks for having me. So when I was reading through this Green New Deal, I felt like I was in an alternate reality named Denmark or (laughs) Canada. It's amazing that we are actually taking concrete action to pass some real reforms Mm -hmm. around uh, climate change in New York. Do you think that New York City is progressive enough to really pull this off? We have already started pulling it off. Uh, As you noted, part of this is a suite of six bills the city council passed recently. Um, So those laws are already on the books. And part of what Mayor de Blasio talked about in his Earth Day Green New Deal speech really relied on that to move the city even closer to its goal of 50 by 80 is the slogan, cutting uh, carbon emissions based on 2005 benchmark by 80 percent by 2050. Um, So that is already on the books. Um, The question that people have raised is whether the building industry can get us there. And then the other elements of the mayor's plan are really interesting, too, in terms of moving the city to 100% clean energy, getting the city's use of power to be entirely from hydropower. Other elements of the plan maybe are more ambitious and would require not necessarily legislation, but the commitment not just of him, but of his successors in City Hall. So this plan ranges from the very small taxes on paper bags to the very large, as you mentioned, switching over how the city powers itself. New constructions have to have green roofs and also reducing the carbon emissions of some of the largest buildings, right? That's right. So a lot of this is going to be reliant on the cooperation of the real estate sector. That's correct. How do Are we optimistic about that? Well, I think so, because the argument has always been that ultimately builders would realize it's in their economic interest to become more efficient. Now, they'll hit some point where that's not going to be as easy as it has been. Um, And the debate about the mayor's proposal has been whether or not buildings that already are certified lead as platinum, as the highest level, whether they would meet his more stringent categories, and it's possible they don't, but that will have to evolve. The misinterpretation of what the mayor said was that he's banning stealing glass skyscrapers. That was the headline the year, day after. He's not exactly banning them. He's saying that if they do not um, institute efficiency measures, they would no longer be allowed to be built. Stark New attacks ones. are up in arms. Yeah, you, what you about wanna, all these glass front high rises? Right, which is the dominant style in the city, has been for many years. 
you know, it's part of the defining kind of look of New York skyscrapers now. But they are inefficient. You know, much of the city's uh, emissions come from uh, those kind of buildings. And what the mayor was saying is that if you want to build those buildings, you have to figure out a way to reduce those emissions somehow by green roofs, by um, reducing the footprint in other ways. And let's not forget about the birds. Never forget about the birds. That's right. Um, What are the critics saying about this NYC Green New Deal? Well, there are a few different kinds. I mean, there's people who say that, obviously, there are folks who deny that climate change is an issue, so we can put them to one side. Of course, course. sure. There are people who say that climate change is an issue, but New York City moving on its own is really just going to burden local businesses, local taxpayers, with attempting to be more responsible. And that won't have an impact on the overall chance of climate change if no one else does. Um, So that's a different argument, that stepping out on our own, while noble, doesn't exactly make sense for local taxpayers and residents. And then there are people who have questions about the technology, whether it's available yet or not. There also are carve-outs in the laws that the council passed to try to make sure that, at least in the time being, rent-stabilized tenants don't get hit with the costs of making the buildings more sustainable. The problem is that over time, those buildings, too, will have to come along if the city is going to hit those targets. So when and how those exemptions will be waived or whether we expect only half the buildings in the city to somehow get us all the way there, that's that's a big question. It's outstanding. You mentioned affordable housing. So Costa Constantinides, who uh, is the head of the city council's Committee on Environmental Protection, he specifically called out affordable housing when he was talking about this Green New Deal. Also hospitals. He was saying that we need to acknowledge that climate change is happening, that carbon uh is a contributor, is the contributor to climate change. But he also was like, we have to make sure that hospitals can stay within neighborhoods and that we are not jettisoning affordable housing. Um, Talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about what some of those protections are, specifically for hospitals. I was really curious about that. Uh, They are more or less exempted from the bill, uh, from the requirement that by a certain time, buildings reduce their emissions to to align with this 80 by 50 standard. Uh, Rent-stabilized housing and affordable housing is as we mentioned earlier, worrying about whether the current system of major capital improvements would allow landlords to use the building improvements as justification to jack up rents. Um, what Costa has said is that when that system changes, as it might as early as this spring in Albany, it's possible there might be a way for buildings who house rent-stabilized apartments who have affordable housing to be required to meet these standards and not have the mechanism to pass on those costs. So that's kind of been put off into the future. Hospitals are a different deal in the short term. Hospitals have like particular power needs. You know, they can't do much about the way their space is configured. They have to make sure their emergency rooms run. We all want that to be the case. So hospitals pressed during the negotiations over this bill to be exempted. And for now, they've been carved out. All right. So that's the Green New Deal. Let's talk a little bit about this city charter revision commission. So there already was one city charter uh, commission that was assembled by the mayor and we voted on their recommendations last fall, I believe. Right. And um, this is the second one. And this one was assembled by the city council. And we actually had Sal Albanese, who's um, a charter commissioner on the show. Mm -hmm. And he was like, look, The mayor's charter commission was so narrow, they served at the behest of the mayor, whatever. We're going to take a very broad look at the charter, and we're going to do big, broad things. Flash forward to now. It seems actually that this charter commission's focus is very narrow, or has been narrowed. Tell me a little bit about the latest. It has been narrowed somewhat. As you mentioned, last year the mayor had a commission, and it was supposed to just look at democracy. How do you improve voting in the city? And it had three questions. They passed and, you know, ostensibly did follow that uh, that directive by the mayor. The city council's commission was different in that it was allowed to take a look at the entire charter. 
it sized up or it, it looked at one point as though it was going to be maybe as sweeping a set of changes as in 1989 when the Supreme Court basically said our government was illegal and they had to reconstitute Whoops. everything, um, including giving the city council the powers that we now know it to have. What has happened now is that the staff for the commission has narrowed down months of hearings, months of ideas from the commissioners and the public to a narrower set um, of potential ideas that the commissioners may at some point in the next month or two devise questions to put on the ballot about. It is narrower than what was initially possible. It's not quite as uh, deep or transformative as I think some people had hoped. You know, Sal Albanese wanted the city to go to a plan of democracy vouchers instead of public financing for campaigns like Seattle has, which would totally change the way we finance municipal races. Many advocates wanted comprehensive planning to be instituted instead of the way we do it now. Um, the commission basically bypassed those ideas did some moves in those areas, uh, looking at things like ranked choice voting and changes to the CCRB, which are fairly big, including you know making the police commissioner have to explain more when he decides to ignore what the CCRB says in terms of disciplining an officer. So important changes, maybe not as transformative as people thought were possible at one point. And do you think that as a voter and a New Yorker, I should be satisfied with the work that this charter commission has done? Well, they certainly have taken their job seriously, and they have looked at a lot. They did get pushback about not going too far. There's an overriding sense, I think, in the establishment in the city that things are going pretty well and that there are risks out there that we can't quite foresee, and we don't want to mess things up and make it bad when those risks hit, like risk to the economy. But I think you can be satisfied that this is an interesting set of changes. If they were all enacted, they would certainly make for a different government, probably a more efficient one. So I think you could probably be a happy camper. But it depends on what the commission decides. They could narrow the list even further, and we could end up in the end with a set of questions not much more ambitious than the ones de Blasio gave us last fall. So you mentioned that one of the issues that they were reviewing was campaign finance um, on a city level. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about campaign finance on a state level. One of the new recent pieces of news that has emerged is that the unions came out strongly against campaign finance reform at the state level. Tell me a little bit about that. So you remember when we were talking a few weeks ago about the New York state budget, that one of the things that was passed as part of it was this public financing uh, election mechanism. But it was weird in that they didn't actually pass a system. They authorized a commission to be impaneled, and by the end of this calendar year, to report back on what that system would look like. Which many progressives were upset about. Upset about, because it's weird to, to kind of outsource it that way. And then it had this kind of poison pill element where Unless the legislature vetoed what that commission said, that would become the law. So it was a very strange arrangement. People wondered why. And what's emerged is that one of the factors that was key toward the end of the budget negotiating period was that the head of the AFL-CIO, the biggest, most powerful labor organization in the state, was like, let's not do this yet. It's going to cost a lot of money. We don't really have the money to do this now, so let's hold off. Um, not all unions were as opposed as that one. Some unions are quite opposed to this. And the fact is that while we focus on corporate contributions, unions are huge givers um, in New York State and across the country and in the city, too, to some degree, um, to campaigns. Um, and it tends to be Democrats, but not always. And they are worried, especially at this time, with the Janus decision from the Supreme Court reducing their ability to um, use uh, people's dues for political purposes, um, that this would hobble an ability they have to influence policy. Um, what is the big unknown now is whether this commission will actually change that very much. They still can end up having a system like that. I think a lot will come down to 
who's on that commission and how transparent they are or aren't in developing the system we're all going to have to accept. And what the union representatives are saying to the press is, well, it's just not our most pressing issue right now. There are other things that we would rather focus on. But actually what they mean is we give a lot of money to candidates and we want to make sure that that isn't changed for now. I think they're both true. Mm. You know, I think there are other things to talk about. And this always comes up when you talk about like the, the mechanisms of our democracy, right? Is it's not a bread and butter issue necessarily. It just drives all the bread and butter issues. So I think unions probably do want to talk about other things. And part of the reason they want to talk about other things is, as you said, this is a major level of influence. And New York State is, because of its relatively strong unions, one of the few places where unions still wield that kind of power. A lot of states, that's really evaporated. In New York State, if anything, unions have become more powerful in recent years through mechanisms like Working Families Party and other um, attempts they've made to exert influence. So they want to hang on to that. And um, that's rational. Uh, and I suspect it will have some impact on the um, the end result that we see in terms of public financing. Yeah, the opportunistic politics of it are really interesting because on the national level, the AFL-CIO has said that they support campaign finance reform. But as you mentioned, that's probably because they don't wield the same type of influence at a national level as they do in New York State. Right. So there's been kind of like um, unequal disarmament here. You know, a lot of the reforms here have really gone primarily after corporate money. Even earlier this year, reducing the influence of LLCs, these shadowy, anonymous, mainly real estate corporations that could donate really unlimited amounts to state candidates. That is basically out of the system now. In the city level, there's very little corporate giving um, that can occur. You know, firms that do business with the city really can't give to a lot of campaigns. To some degree, unions are in the position of having um, a system where their enemies have been kneecapped um, to a degree, and they have uh, the ability to influence a policy here. On the national level, where dark money is a much bigger player, they don't necessarily have that. So they're trying to hang on to the advantage they have. And I think that probably makes sense, whether it's pure or not, I guess, is in the eyes of the beholder. Right. And I believe unions submitted an amicus brief in support of corporations during Citizens United. Uh, but since that passed, they've come out and said, oh, actually, that went a little bit too far. That's true. I mean, the politics of campaign finance reform are often really interesting, right? You have people who are normally uh, allies on the progressive side, um, and those who are strict First Amendment advocates sometimes break with those who are strict campaign finance advocates because they say that to some degree tinkering with the ability to influence the money behind campaigns does influence speech. I don't think I necessarily agree with that, but this is not the first time where you've had um, whatever the opposite of strange bedfellows is, sort of distant bedfellows around campaign finance because it does cut to the heart of what you think politics is supposed to be about. Jared, anything else wild and crazy in the world of city and state politics that you want to talk about, or should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. That was good. All right. Thanks so much, Jared. Appreciate your coming on. Pleasure. The perks of taping this show at Brick House in downtown Brooklyn are numerous. For one, this building is positively humming with the diverse talents of the staff of Brick Arts and Media, from radio producers to art curators. Then you have the teens from Brooklyn Tech hanging out in the lobby, keeping us hip and with it. But one of the best parts is that just outside this studio is a large and legit art gallery, which hosts about half a dozen amazingly curated exhibitions a year. The current show is called The Portrait is Political, spotlighting marginalized or underrecognized socially active communities in the borough. 
One of the artists whose work is on display is Jayshree Abichandani, who is showing a number of paintings of feminist activists of South Asian descent. We are happy to welcome her to Moment 2 BK. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, were these paintings specifically created for this exhibition, or did you already have them in your body of work? Well, I'd actually begun to make a few of them. And then in 2017, a curator named Alexandra Chang approached me and said that she would like me to expand on the series for the Asian Arts Initiative's 25th anniversary in Philadelphia. And I had been involved with the Asian Arts Initiative with a long time and a big fan of their director, Gail Issa. And so initially what began as a project to document the organization, the women in the organization that I had begun, Saucy, South Asian Women's Creative Collective, I thought would be great better acronym, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thought it would be better suited to actually give uh, everyone a portrait of the feminists in the community that were just doing this most amazing work and not just limited to the ones that I had personally worked with. So in addition to being a TV show and having this go on YouTube, it's also a podcast. So mm -hmm. maybe for people who are listening, if you can describe what these portraits look like. And they can also obviously go to YouTube and your website to see mm -hmm. the works. Mm -hmm. So the portraits in the series are either in round or triangular form. I guess what I decided was that I would give the queer folks the triangles and the the kind of bi and straight, and I'm saying straight with quotes, uh, folks circles and initially the thinking was just to really get away from the square and the you know the frame and all the kind of art historical weight of the frame and circles and triangles seems like seemed like such a feminine shape and I thought very much about ACT UP and the history of it with its pink triangle and uh, felt like, you know, that would be a really good reference point for the queer paintings. And some of them are sculptural and yes. some of them are more traditional 2D yes. paintings. Yes. In fact, I had begun the series with sculptural portraits, but they take a really long time. <laughs> and I need to get the folks to give me photographs from all the various angles so that I can sculpt them in the round, which is really different from the paintings where I can just stalk their social media and choose an image. Just and, like the know. rest of us. Yes, exactly. And so there are 30-some <laughs> portraits yes. on view. Yes. Um, the, the title of this show, of which you are part, is The Portrait is Political. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that informed your thinking about how to represent your subjects. I mean, I just couldn't imagine a more perfect title because it references so much the feminist adage and all my work is feminist. And so it feels like a really great framing for the series, really. And how did you select the people who you included in this? I mean, it's amazing to look at this sea mm -hmm. of brown faces mm -hmm. of South Asian descent, mm -hmm. um, many of whom live here in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. How did you go about narrowing this field? So there were no brainers, you know, like, for example, the sculptural heads are women that I'm really close to. Like uh, one of them is Sonia Mehta, who's my co-founder of Saucy London. One of them is Swati Kurana, who's a founding member of Saucy New York. And then there's Tenmozi Sandararajan, there's Bervi Desai, there's Malika Dat, there's Nahar Alam, Shamtoli Haq. These are women who I have known to really shift the landscape of the city in a substantial way. So it was no kind of thinking even that they needed to be part of the series. Um, but then I also wanted the series to really be very representative of the diversity of the community. Mm -hmm. So we have 
folks from Afghanistan, from Guyana, from Jamaica, from Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka. You know, I tried to, from the UK, from the US, I mean, I tried to be really representative of nationalities, of religions. Ah, we have lots of atheists like myself uh, in the in the series. They're queer, trans, straight, working class, everything that you could think of, I tried to be as inclusive as possible. Tell us a little bit about this other show um, that's on display <laughs> at the Ford Foundation right oh now. Oh my God, it is a bit of a dream come true for me. Well, I got invited by Lisa Kim, who's the director of the Ford Foundation Gallery, to put some proposals together for her. And I based my curatorial proposal on an idea that Naomi Klein had, where she talks about the fact that we have more social and political engagement today than ever before, and that has a lot to do with social media and the internet, but that doesn't always translate into the type of political action that we want to see. And she puts that down to a lack of utopian imagination. And what she says is 50 years ago, because we're thinking now 50 years ago was Stonewall, was the civil rights movement, that when folks were working to turn oppressive systems, they were looking for complete revolution. And so the second show will be the response to the violence. The bodies that are in peril will be elevated into a sacred space of love for radical love, which is the name of the show. So we really are going to take all these bodies, these black, brown, queer, disabled bodies and create a space for them that will really give them the kind of honor and respect that they deserve. And finally, we will end with utopian imagination, which is, well, how do international artists of color see us, envision us into the future? I love this idea of sort of a three-part narrative mm -hmm. um, that both looks at our current reality of violence mm -hmm. against brown people, mm -hmm. um, women, mm -hmm. uh, LGBT community, but mm -hmm. ends in a, in a hopeful place. Yes. Um, and the lineup of artists that you've curated is like <laughs> a greatest hits. Thank you. Um, yes. And so this is on view right now mm -hmm. at the Ford Foundation building. Shout out to my Ford Foundation family. <laughs> They're amazing. And anyone can just come in on yes. the street, yes. go look at it? Absolutely. It's, um, it's up till May 11th and you can actually see my curatorial work all year because once this ends, June 11th will be the opening of Radical Love and then um, Utopian Imagination will open on September 17th. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to come back briefly yeah. to what you have on display here at mm -hmm. Brick House again. Mm -hmm. So again, this is part of the portrait is political, but your piece is called Jasmine Blooms at Night. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the title of this mm -hmm. piece? Yes, so when I founded Saucy and a lot of these women, a lot of the feminists in the, in the series founded their organizations in the 90s, you know, there was a lot of kind of transatlantic dialogue between South Asian communities. And there was a festival that happened in Canada called Desh Pardesh. And folks from the U.S. and the U.K. really like we went to Canada for a pilgrimage. And um, this was this very fruitful place that brought art, politics and culture together. And um, one of the writers they had was an Indo-Caribbean writer named Shani Motu, who wrote a book called Serious Blooms at Night. And it was way ahead of its time. The, the protagonist was this trans person who had suffered endless amounts of sexual violence and it's based in magic realism. And it was just a book that was transformational for all of us. I switched it to Jasmine as opposed to Sirius because Jasmine 
is a flower that in South Asia is worn both on the bodies of women as adornment as well as in worship. But it isn't actually affiliated with any religion, whether it's Hindu or Muslim or Christian or Buddhist. It's just a flower that's beloved by women. And so I thought that this jasmine flower blooming at night was a perfect metaphor for the ways in which these women have been so resourceful and had a massive impact without having the kinds of resources that, say, a white man might. So this show is, as we mentioned, the faces of 30-some people Mm -hmm. of South Asian Mm -hmm. descent. And unfortunately, right now, the interchangeability of brown faces is in the news because Mm. of this misidentification Mm -hmm. of a brown student. So for our viewers who haven't heard about this, Mm -hmm. facial recognition matched the face of a brown undergraduate student, Mm. female of Sri Lankan descent, to the name of one of the suicide bombers um, in Sri Lanka. And so this bulletin went out. Uh, internationally with the face of an American 18-year-old on it. Uh, And she has family in Sri Lanka, and obviously this was devastating and and a terrible mistake. Um, I'm curious about what you think that says about the way that South Asian and brown faces are perceived and what you hope that the audience takes away uh, by spending time with the faces of these 30-some feminists of South Asian descent in this gallery. Yeah, I mean, I think that it has been really big challenge being South Asian in the United States after 911 happened. Our community was suddenly targeted and scrutinized, and that hasn't changed. And since Trump has been in office, there has been a massive uptick in this kind of racist violence. Um, I read today that a family of four Sikh was basically killed. Yesterday, I read about a 13-year-old girl who was driven over and is in critical care. So, I mean... And these are hate crimes by U.S. citizens against other... Yes, that are happening Mm -hmm. against South Asians on a daily basis. And I think what I really wanted to do... So there's the primary address for the work, really, I have to be honest, is my community, right? And it has to be my community because it is my community that does not have this kind of validation. They don't get to go to museums and see on the walls the folks within their midst who are making this kind of change, right? So first and foremost, the address is for them. It is for the younger folks to be able to look at those paintings and to be able to identify women who could be mentors and resources for them because these women have like decades of information and knowledge that they can share. And then on the to the folks outside of the community, I hope it really like kind of breaks down any kinds of stereotypes that they may, may have about who we are, what our faith looks like, how it drives us to be in the world, what we may physically appear like. And because you can see in that series that there is so much diversity in what being South Asian actually means. I hope that uh, that comes through. Absolutely. You really get a sense that the South Asian community is not monolithic and that feminists of South Asian descent come in all different Mm -hmm. shapes, sizes, Mm -hmm. colors. Yes. Um, And I have to say, I'm really happy that Brick has the exhibition text in Bangla. I think that's extraordinary. And I love the fact that the exhibition map includes their bios because it gives people a chance to be able to just 
get to those women, those resources immediately. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So your piece, again, is called Jasmine Blooms at Night. It mm-hmm. is part of this larger show mm-hmm. at Brick House called The Portrait is Political. And I really recommend that people come see it because in addition to your work, there's the work of dozens of mm-hmm. other artists and their depictions of black and brown and gender nonconforming and trans bodies. Um, it's a really beautifully curated show. And then one more time, tell us about uh, the show Perilous Bodies. Just mm-hmm. tell people where they can go see it and how yep. long it's up. Folks, come over to the Ford Foundation. In the exhibition is open except for Sundays every day from 10 to 6. It is free to the public. And I hope that you can join us because we are trying to move you and shake you and get you to see the ways in which art can communicate things that a lot of other funders' reports can't. Yes. Um, Jayshree, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time. Indeed. (laughs) And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show your support is with your best interpretive dance outside our studio window, or you can also review 112BK on iTunes. Also, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 